Welcome to the Rocks and Roots podcast. So you are stuck with me on a solo episode this week. Tumbles is on the other side of the world, finishing up the Tour de Mont Blanc. So I am your host for this week, Cranky. I have been attempting to get a hike off the ground um, without much luck, entirely my own fault. I am leaving tonight for Old Rag Mountain in the Shenandoah. So I will do another episode talking about and explaining that hike. But I figured... Uh, it would be a good opportunity to at least get something out there since we haven't done anything in a little bit. <clears throat> so I wanted to talk about a couple of things. I have been watching a documentary on the YouTubes, uh, <clears throat> Deadly Ascent, discussing the 2019 disaster on Mount Everest. That season, there were 11 people who died on the mountain. And unfortunately, it was all and continues to be all entirely preventable. Basically, the conclusion is that this is going to continue to happen. And I will explain why. I was going to call this episode assholes on Everest, but I figured I would be a tad bit sensitive since we are talking about, you know, people who lost their lives, although there is one dude in there who is truly an asshole. We'll talk about him. Fucking husband of the year. So, it is a really, really good documentary. Like I said, check it out on YouTube. Um, Deadly Ascent. So, It focuses on, at least the first half, focuses on a couple of different people. So Alan Arnett is the oldest person to successfully summit K2. He did that in 2014, and he is basically a self-proclaimed expert on mountaineering and these high peak summits um he like i said he did k2 he did everest he has a blog he monitors this stuff so he was basically the rational expert in this piece you then have angeli and angeli my apologies angeli angeli and sharad kalkarni a couple from India, and this guy is fucking husband of the year. We'll talk about why in a minute. And then you have Riza Ali, uh, who is a 20-something who made actually a smart decision up on Everest that year. So let's talk about what is going on here. I was not aware of this, and I found it fascinating. In India, it is a almost rite of passage to summit Everest. It's something that is highly encouraged by people's families. If you summit, 
you are a hero. Um, it is a huge milestone throughout Indian culture. I was not aware of that. So as a result, you have a lot of people from India attempting an Everest summit. And in 2019, normally you have an about an 11-day window where the weather on Everest is opens up and people attempt their summits. In 2019, that window was reduced to three days. This is a major problem because you've got, as the cost of attempting an Everett summit has come down, it used to be between seventy-five dollars and $100,000, $120,000 to hire a company to assist you with your summit. <clears throat> that cost has come down dramatically to between $30,000, $40,000, maybe even $50,000, which is a dramatic decrease and has made it affordable. Still a struggle for most people, but that is in the range of affordability. Like if I wanted to take out alone, I could do that. And I am by no means wealthy. So it is becoming more accessible to people, which is great. The downside is you've got people who are summiting who really have no business being up there. And in 2019, this led to 11 deaths, the deadliest season on the mountain. So let's go through, let's talk about Anjali and Sharad. So they were a husband and wife team, and they had done other summits in other parts of the world. They had an advertising business that they gave to their son so they could focus on summiting in 2018 and doing treks. And in 2019, they attempted an Everest summit. So the way that this works is, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is you march between the base camps just to get to Everest. Um, you have to fly into the most <laughs> dangerous airport in the world. The airport, uh, the airport is at the highest elevation of any airport in the world. It's a long trek just to get to base camp. Um, I've <clears throat> heard of people, Tumbles has a friend who went to base camp and just that in itself was the, an adventure of a lifetime for this person. So once you get to base camp, you acclimatize so you don't get hypoxia and die, at least in theory. And they march you back and forth between the different camps so that you can acclimatize. And then, if there's a good enough weather window, you make your summit attempt. So, 2019, with all of the permits to climb that were issued... And this is another factor that makes this so dangerous is Nepal 
loves this because they get a lot of money. Basically, the majority of their economy is built on tourism, and a lot of that tourism is centered around the mountain. So they love it. So they just issue permit after permit after permit. And like I said, more and more people are attempting um, because it is more affordable. So what happened in 2019 was you had about 800 people attempting to summit in a three-day weather window. The weather that year was not the best. So 800 people attempting to summit over an 11-day window is a bit much. Trying to cram 800 people into a three-day window is a recipe for a disaster because what ends up happening is there's not enough room on the mountain for all of those people. And when I say 800, I'm talking clients, people that have paid, Sherpas, guides. So it's not, you know, strictly 800 people that have paid and are attempting to summit. It's all of their support people. You can't move. Looking at the pictures in this documentary, it looked like a line at goddamn Six Flags to get on King Dakka. It was at a standstill. The problem with this is as you are standing there, you are using up oxygen. You are getting cold. And people start to get impatient. They start pushing against each other. Uh, One rope, 800 people on one rope. This is, it's amazing to me that not more people died. So, Anjali and Sherrod started out for their summit attempt, and they got separated. He ended up ahead of her a little bit, uh, which, again, if I was summiting, well, I would probably not do Everest. But, even if I was on a short day hike with Mrs. Cranky, I would not get ahead of her. I would not separate. I know sometimes I probably drive tumbles nuts because if we're doing a trail run, I tend to wait at intersections. I think it's it's safer. I just don't want to get too far ahead of anyone that I am with. So the fact that this dude separates from his wife on <clears throat> the highest summit in the world, the second deadliest mountain in the world... So right there, husband of the year. So they separate. They reconnect. And she tells him to go ahead. That they will meet on the summit. No. No, you won't. The summit is about the size of a dining room table. So basically, it's one person at a time up there. You're not going to meet at no fucking summit. So they separate again. So he left his wife fucking twice so far. He gets up, does his summit, uh, turns to his guide, and wants his guide to take a picture. And the guide told him, because there's so many people behind them, the Sherpas and the guides knew that this was starting to be not a good situation. He said if... Do you want your stupid picture? 
or do you want to survive? Because we need to leave now. Time is running short. So this guy in the documentary is, keep in mind, his wife is dead. I'll, I'll explain exactly why. His wife is dead. And he's still expressing disappointment that he didn't get his fucking summit picture. So asshole of the year right here. So this <clears throat> guide says, if I take off my gloves to get your fucking picture, I'm going to get frostbite. We're leaving now. So they start heading down. And he sees his wife. He recognized her from her clothing. And she is struggling. And she collapses. She falls out of that big line of people and is on the ground dying. What happens at a certain point if you let hypoxia, mountain sickness, that's your vocabulary word for today, kids, motherfucking hypoxia, mountain sickness, if you let it go too long, you kind of enter this peaceful state where you don't want to do anything um the body just kind of <clears throat> begins to shut down and you don't really care that you are dying um it, you enter this very calm sedate mental state and that is when people die um, which, I don't know, it could be the body's way, it's definitely caused by lack of oxygen, but it could be the body's way of self-defense as it enters the death process, because to me, that's a hell of a lot better than panicking. Um, maybe I'll get into the history of the first K2 expedition, uh, in 1939, which failed, but in that expedition... One of the members um, had severe hypoxia and made it back down to one of the camps and just went to bed and the Sherpas and no one could rouse him. They're like, we need to leave. We have to get down. He's like, oh, maybe I'll think about climbing down tomorrow. You, you just don't care. So that's what was happening to this lady. She's laying there. <clears throat> she's dying. Uh, Sherrod goes over, he tries to rouse her, the Sherpas try to rouse her, she's just not moving, just content to want to hold on, get a hug, and die. So he, the Sherpas had to drag this guy away. Um, again, not, not the smartest fucking move. Um, he had already left her twice. He got his summit, though, so so he he's all good. It only cost him a dead wife. I'm, I'm trying to be as kind as I can. But later on in the documentary, he takes no responsibility. He calls this an accident, and there's nothing that could have been done. Um, yes, yes, there's a lot that could have been done. Once you saw that situation you pack up and you head back down to base camp and you get the fuck out of there. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm debating whether or not to discuss something else. I think we'll hold it off to the next episode and we'll reference back to this story.
so this guy ends up <clears throat> holding his wife in his arms as she dies. So that's their story. Their uh, documentary focuses on a young man, uh, Riza Ali, who I would guess by his appearances uh, in his 20s. And he started to have trouble going up. Same situation, long line of people, single rope. <clears throat> he started to have trouble with his oxygen regulator. And his Sherpa said, <clears throat> you need to make a decision right now. If you attempt to continue, you'll probably die. Or you can turn around. He wisely turned around and survived. He now does a lot of advocacy talking about how, you know, making smart decisions, uh, the summit is not worth your life, <clears throat> that kind of thing. So, um, good on you, Mr. Riza Ali. Good on you. But we've talked about this on the podcast many times. No summit, no hike is worth your life. But what happened on Everest in 2019 was you have people that paid all of this money, tens of thousands of dollars, they're there. It is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and that clouds people's judgment. Uh, combined with you're not in the best climate to make healthy decisions, um, you are in a climate with limited oxygen, so people's uh, wallets make their decision, people's egos, like, I'm here, I'm gonna get just, like, husband of the year, uh, Sherrod, uh, Kulkarni, same thing, going through his head, I'm gonna get my summit, and if I gotta leave this bitch down here, uh, we'll quote-unquote meet up at the summit, so you have people up there with a lot less experience, who have money tied into it, who have ego tied into it. And if you think about the early expeditions, Edmund Hillary, uh, the first expeditions of K2, the attitude there was if one person makes the summit, then it counts for the whole team because it is a team expedition. These are not teams. These are a bunch of assholes with either too much money or have taken out loans that are doing this for ego and glory. And unfortunately, it cost 11 people their lives in 2019. Doesn't look like much is gonna change because Nepal, and I can't say that I blame them, <clears throat> Nepal is a very poor country. They survive on tourist dollars. This is a major, this is 60% of their economy is built on tourism. So they need this. So usually what ends up happening is the tourism board of Nepal meets after every one of these disasters. <clears throat> they make up all these rules. We're going to limit the number of permits. Um, you have to have proven yourself to have climbed a 7,000 meter summit before we allow you to climb Everest. And, you know, all of these rules are passed and then they are not enforced because 
<clears throat> the policy's dollar signs. Personally, I don't see the situation getting any better because the obviously in 2020, because of the <coughs> um, things were shut down and they're now going to be opening up. Um, and after a year of no income, they're going to want, I believe, even more income. I could be wrong, but I, I don't see the situation changing. So takeaways. Um, a, it's just a really cool documentary with a lot of awesome footage. So go check that out. B, it is an ex extreme example of what we often talk about on this podcast. Um, be smart. No summit is worth your life. Any doubts, turn back. If the weather turns, if there's anything that has thrown a wrinkle into your shit, it is smarter to turn back than to risk your life. Um, I'm sure Tumbles will be sharing uh, some stories from Mont Blanc uh, in a couple of weeks. So that is Assholes on Everest. Um, the ultimate reinforcement of some of the things that we have been mentioning. I think if we get into a situation like this where um, <clears throat> we can't share a hike that we've done together and we end up doing these solo episodes, um, I think think I'll talk about K2. Um, I like the one that Tumbles did her solo episode. So that's the kind of stuff that we'll be sharing when we can't get together and share a hike. So a couple of other things that I wanted to mention. Private property. So I wanted to share a item in the news. So this is from uh, PressHerald.com. August 11th, New Hampshire man evicted from his cabin doesn't think he can go back to being a hermit. So we've got a couple of listeners who either live in New Hampshire or near New Hampshire or climb in the white. So I wanted to share this because I thought that this story was interesting and raises some interesting questions. Concord, New Hampshire. An off-the-grid New Hampshire man says his days of living as a hermit appear to be over. River Dave, whose cabin in the woods burned down after nearly three decades on property that he was ordered to leave, says he doesn't think he can return to his lifestyle. Lidstone, 81, <clears throat> said even if he could rebuild his cabin, which burned down last week, I would have people coming every weekend, so I just can't get out of society anymore. Lidstone, a logger by trade who chopped his own firewood and grew his own food in the woods along the Merrimack River in the town of Canterbury, Canterbury Tales, said he's not grieving the loss of his life in isolation, blah, 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 quotes, quotes, don't care. Okay, here we go. 
he was jailed on July 15th on a civil contempt sanction and was told he'd be released if he agreed to leave the cabin following a property dispute that dates back to 2016. The landowner, 86-year-old Leonard Giles of South Burlington, Vermont, wanted Lidstone off the property. Lidstone said a prior owner in the family gave his word years ago that he could live there, but he had nothing in writing. So this guy had been living in this cabin for 30 years. This is something that I've considered kind of a fantasy. Basically, every time I turn on the news of finding a cabin and just kind of living off grid, chopping firewood, uh, having a garden, um, walking outside, being able to shoot some guns. It has been strictly at this point, um, a fantasy because I live in a state where my job requires me to live in this state. So this guy had a handshake deal, apparently, so he says, and has been doing this for 30 years. The current owner, who is, um, bought the property, I guess in 2016, I'm not sure when the current owner brought the property, found out that this guy was living there. Um, there were also some problems with, um, Lidstone, David Lidstone with, uh, some waste disposal and some roads, I guess, were encroaching on the area where he had had his cabin. So the new owner found out about this, wanted him out of there. Um, I find this story interesting, A, because this guy was living out, you know, a fantasy that I've had, but B, uh, property rights. I am a huge fucking nerd when it comes to laws and government and rights and all of that shit. And basically, I'm not going to delve too much into this, but basically, the only rights that you truly have are property rights. You are born with your body. You own it. That means you should be, although we have laws that do not agree with this, you should be able to do with it your own body as you please. You then are responsible for, at least in theory, for using your body to learn skills. You then trade those skills for monetary value and you go out and you build wealth and accumulate other property. But it all begins with you. The only thing you are born with, the only thing that you own, the only property you own is your is yourself. So while I absolutely respect this guy, I, I think it's it's great that he was doing this off grid, providing for himself. <clears throat> he was on someone else's property. And um, even though it sucks, 
I mean, if I was the property owner, I would have allowed him to stay there. But even though it sucks, you have to abide by what the property owner says. Um, bottom line, that's it. So how does this apply to a motherfucking hiking podcast? Well, <clears throat> if you go back to some of our earlier episodes, we have hiked a lot in the Catskills. And the Catskills is just one of the many trails where you have to be aware of private property and trespassing. So for those of us that hike the Whites, the Adirondacks, the Appalachian Trail, that's all state land, National Park Service land. Normally, you don't have to worry about that. However, there are trails that you either have to cross private property to access or the trails themselves are on private property. So in the Catskills, Catterskill, High Peak, and Round Top is typically approached from the south, but some may prefer to come in the west using the snowmobile trail or bushwhacking over the Round Top. This is fine, but care must be taken to stay on the footpaths coming from the two parking areas on Gillespie Road. Do not <coughs> trespass on private land above Cortina Valley to the north of the two parking areas. So this is a situation that could easily happen. You're hiking or you're on a snowmobile and you're not paying attention and you wander off trail. You are in someone else's property. Friday Mountain in the Catskills. A hunter's cabin is located on private property along the east shoulder of Friday Mountain. Just below 2,000 feet. <clears throat> Please avoid this property altogether when ascending Friday. Halcott Mountain. Do not attempt to climb Halcott Mountain from the south without permission from the property owners. And then you've got Bear Pen and Vly Mountains are often approached from the end of the drivable portion of Route 3 coming from the south out of Halcott Center. If you choose to hike from here, it is important that you park only on the east side of the road before you come to the snowplow turnaround and then there were trails in the Catskills that you used to be able to hike even though they were on private property and I think a couple of them have been um the property owners have revoked that privilege um and it really doesn't matter why I was listening to an episode of Trail Tales, and Kyle was talking to um, a young man who had was hiking out west in um, <clears throat> one of the old glacier trails, and they got into this whole thing because on that particular trail, there are no 
tent sites, there are no shelters. So what people do is as they're going along, a lot of that trail goes through towns and is on roads. They will just knock on people's doors and ask, hey, can I set up in your yard? And um, the two of them were stunned and went back and forth as to why a particular landowner told this kid to pack his shit up and get the fuck out. Um, doesn't matter why. I mean, there are people who resent the fact that some of these trails, actually all of these trails were set up through eminent domain. And then in the Shenandoah, where I am going this weekend, they didn't even do that in what I consider to be a legal way. They didn't negotiate with the individual landowners. They just took the land, gave one <clears throat> blanket price to each landowner and said, sorry, fuck you. This this is what you got. Here it is. You can't even take it or leave it um, because your land is gone. They, they have taken it. So you either take that money or you get absolutely nothing. So there are landowners that resent that shit um, because sections of their land have been taken to either have a trail run through it or... The trail abuts really, really close to their land. And think about yourselves. Would you want people traipsing through your yard, hundreds of people traipsing through your yard every year? Uh, I don't really think so. So I definitely can understand the position of these private landowners, and we should be thankful to them for those that allow access to their land either through a phone call or just a handshake, um, definitely be thankful for that. And for those that don't, <clears throat> understand that there are reasons why and be respectful of that. Uh, so maybe I will get into this a little bit more when I record the episode about my hike, which I will be leaving for in about four hours. But I think uh, that should be it for now. So again, I'm going to be doing the um, old... What the fuck is this trail? Let me pull up the old all trails. Stand by. Ooh, moments of silence in a podcast that's great okay so old rag mountain loop in the north end of shenandoah i will be talking about that on our next episode until then have a good fucking day